Maybe you feel like you've gone through the school of hard knocks and your colors are black and blue and yet we know according to Luke 137 that with God nothing shall be impossible. Nothing's impossible with God. When things look bleak, I said, number one, trust God. Number two, wait on God. And number three, finally, go do something for God. Go find somebody worse off than you. When things look bleak, go find somebody who's got it worse than you and try and be a blessing to them. When things look bleak, there is a way out. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to the Gospel of Mark. In the 15th chapter, we're going to be finishing off the chapter today with about half a dozen verses or so. Last time we saw in this series on Mark, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross, things look black. In fact, literally, the sun goes down. There's all kinds of supernatural things that take place. And finally, when the light comes back on, Jesus Christ cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he bows his head and he dies and there's an earthquake and the the temple veil is torn in half and we find that the centurion, the soldier over a hundred Roman soldiers says, surely this man was the son of God. How right he was. We pick it up right there in verse number 42 of Mark chapter 15. It says, and now when the even was come because it was the preparation that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went boldly into Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead and called unto him the centurion. And he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid in him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, beheld where he was laid. Well, folks, things don't look very good at this point, do they? In fact, it looks very bleak. I'd like to talk about that today, when things look bleak. When things look bleak. Let's pray before we begin. Our Father, we do thank you now for the message of the gospel. We do thank you for our Savior and the sacrifice he made for us. And Father, help us today to stop and ponder and reflect upon this time in between the crucifixion and the resurrection, the very burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. And three days that go by and the followers of Christ, the believers in wonder and in shock and in awe, Father, there are times in our lives when we no doubt have bleak-looking situations. We're on pause. We don't know what's going to unfold. What do we do during such times? Help us now, Lord, to learn from this passage. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15 which describes the gospel. If I asked you what the gospel is, You know, the average person has heard the word, but they couldn't give you the biblical definition of it. 
But we find the Bible definition for the gospel given to us in 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses. Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel. And then he goes on and he says, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was secondly buried, and that he thirdly rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You know, we talk a lot about the death of Christ, and we should. We talk a lot about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we should. But we dare not forget that second part sandwiched in between the two, the burial of Christ. The burial of Jesus Christ is very, very important. In fact, it's mentioned in all four Gospels. There's a reason for that. Why is it so important? It's simply important for this reason because it proves that Jesus Christ was dead. Jesus Christ actually literally died. There are all kinds of silly theories out there that he didn't really die. See, if you can disprove the death of Christ, you can disprove the resurrection. And there's all kinds of theories out there that say, well, he wasn't really dead. He just fainted. There's the swoon theory that he just passed out. They took him down. The the coolness and the dampness of the cave revived him again where he was buried and he came back to life. Or other theories that the apostle stole his body away and all kinds of silly things like that. I think the spear in the side of Christ and the blood and the water that came out was of God to prove that he had literally died. His heart had stopped. So indeed we have dead deity at least as far as the body of the Savior goes. You don't bury somebody who's still living, right? So the burial of Christ proves the death of Christ. It underscores that. But imagine how bad things looked at this point. They've taken the limp, lifeless body of Jesus Christ down from the cross. They've laid it in the tomb. We know the ending, but they didn't at that time. And they walk away thinking, wow, what do we do now? All these years of following him are are gone. There, there's no point. There's, there's nothing more to do. Things look black. Things look gloomy. Things look dark and depressing and desolate and dire and dismal and dreary. I mean, it was gray. As, as they were reflecting upon all this, they, they were feeling God-forsaken, miserable, solemn and somber and sunless and, and wretched as they say, where do we go from here? Things looked bleak. Imagine that. As we consider that, as we look at this passage, I see several things and I'd like to cover them. We see, first of all, what I call the undercover disciple. The undercover, the secret disciple here. In verse 42, it starts out and it says, and now when the even or evening was come, because it was the preparation, that is, notice the day before the Sabbath. Now, The Passover is at hand. They're on the heels of it. The Passover was celebrated the 15th of Nisan, which would be the first month for the Jewish people, right around our late March, early April time. And the day before this this Passover, this special Sabbath, was called the Day of Preparation. It was on the 14th of Nisan. And, And the lambs were killed on that afternoon. So here you have the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, dying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You think that's a coincidence? You think there's some parallels here? And you find that before uh, he, he, uh, he could be uh, taken down from the cross, he had to literally die. Now, there was a thief on both sides. Remember that. They weren't dead yet. And remember what, what crucifixion was all about. Those muscles across the lungs were stretched tight, and the victim had to lift himself up on, on his legs in order to catch a breath. And so if they broke the legs of the victim, the victim suffocated, 
And he died. It was death by suffocation, literally. Well, the Pharisees were meticulous about getting these bodies off the cross. We can't have this going on on this special high day, this Sabbath, this Passover. We've got to follow the letter of the law. Funny how meticulous they were about little details like that when they had just broken somewhere around 20 laws to unjustly condemn the Savior. They, they literally strained a gnat out of their drinking water and they swallowed a camel. But that's the story of a Pharisee. So they come along, they break the legs of the two thieves on both sides, but Jesus Christ is dead already. And honestly, many men would have died of the beating alone before even being hung on the cross. And so they look and, and they say, is he dead? Well, these were professional executioners. They knew exactly what to do to prove whether the victim was dead or not. So one took his spear and he put it in the side of Jesus Christ and that sack around the heart had filled with blood and water. The blood and the water came out and beyond a, a shadow of a doubt, Jesus was dead. Now, they break the legs of the other two thieves there on the, the cross, but they don't break any bone of Christ. Is that coincidental or is there a reason for that? Had not the psalmist prophesied a thousand years earlier, that's how it play out, in Psalm 34, 20, it says, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. And here it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the New Testament tells us that our Savior is the Passover lamb for us. The Bible says he is our Passover lamb. And there was something about the Passover lamb given way back in Numbers 9 that tells us some insight here in verse 12. It says, They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it, According to the ordinance of the Passover, they shall keep it. So there was something to this no broken bone thing here. The psalmist talked about it. We find as the law was given, there was not a bone of the Passover lamb to be broken. And so Jesus Christ, no bone is broken. They didn't break his legs. They just put the spear in his side, which was also a fulfillment of prophecy. Well, we've got in verse number 43, it goes on, and it mentions Joseph of Arimathea. Here's this undercover disciple, this secret disciple. It mentions Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. So here we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. It describes where he's from. Arimathea is no Jerusalem. It's no Bethel. It's not a famous town in the, in the Bible, but it was a Jewish city. And in fact, most believe it was where Samuel the prophet was from. But we find this Joseph of Arimathea was most likely a member of the council known as the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and chief priests and all these lawyers and doctors of the law. And we find that Joseph of Arimathea had not consented to the condemnation of Jesus Christ. We read over in Luke twenty-three fifty, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just the same had not consented to the council and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. So here he was. He was a believer, we, we think, at least at this point. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. Someplace along the line, he had gotten saved. Maybe Nicodemus, uh, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, who got saved in John 3, had gone back and witnessed to Joseph. We don't know exactly how it took place, but Joseph got it. The other 70 or so didn't get it. They didn't get it. You know, why is it that some people get it when it comes to salvation, but it's always this, this little group, this small fraction, this minority, if you will, they get it, but the vast majority don't get it. And, and so you say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to err on the side of the majority. Don't do that. 
Truth is often found in the minority. And we find here just a couple of men on the Sanhedrin who got it, but they were undercover disciples. We find in verse number 43, it mentions that Joseph of Arimathea was an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God. And they went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. Now, here's why he wanted that body. And the word craving means urgently, urgently here. He, he was fervent about this. He didn't want the body of Christ to just be thrown into the city dump. On the south side of Jerusalem, they had this, this dumping ground. There was always a fire going there, and, and there was always garbage being thrown in it. It was Gehenna. And they would throw stray dogs in there that had died and all kinds of carcasses. That's probably where the two thieves ended up, by the way, if nobody claimed those bodies. But here you have Joseph of Arimathea, and he urgently goes into Pilate, and he craves the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's bold. We find the word boldly in verse number 43. He took a stand, finally. He had been an undercover Christian up to this point, but he, he takes his stand now. Do we take our stand well, what does it take for us to finally take our stand? We see what pushed Joseph here to finally stand up and say, that's enough of this. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 29 and verse number 25 that the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Do we fear what people are going to say? Do we fear what people are going to think of us? That can really hamstring us. That can really trip us up. That can be our Achilles heel. The, the fear of man bringeth a snare, the Bible says. And so we find that Joseph finally takes his stand, and this is going to smack in the face of the rest of the Sanhedrin. This is going to really raise their ire. And, and, and so he goes to Pilate, and he, he says, I'll take the body. And he takes it down. Pilate doesn't care who gets the body. He can kill two birds with one stone. It's like, I got to get this thing off the cross before 6 p.m., and if you want it, go ahead and take it. Now, uh, apparently, years earlier, Joseph had bought this, uh, this plot of land, and in it is a garden, and in it is a cave, or, or, or rocks that a cave can be made. And so Joseph buys this, and he begins to hew out this area that's going to be the family tomb. With our Western mind, we really don't understand uh, how a, 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 uh, a body was buried back in those days, but it was put in normally a cave or something like that, and we find that Joseph put... The, the body of Christ in his cave because he saw the injustice and all and he makes this swift decision and he makes history in the process. So he brings the bruised, battered body of the Lord Jesus Christ down from the cross. The Bible tells us he actually had to do that. How he got out there, the ladder, whatever. Who helped him? We don't know outside of Nicodemus, maybe somebody else. But they take down the, the lifeless body of Christ lovingly and with caring hands they prepare the body for burial. And in that process, uh, maybe unknowingly, they're fulfilling prophecy. You see, back in Isaiah 53, 700 years earlier, verse 9 tells us that he, Christ, made his grave with the wicked. He was crucified between the two thieves and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. So he's buried in a rich man's tomb. Thanks to Joseph of Arimathea, he receives an honorable burial. Joseph finally comes forward and he's counted as a disciple. But we see, first of all, the undercover disciple. Secondly, we see the unnerved despot, Pilate. This is going to shake him up. Now, we're going to see him one last time here in verse 44. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead and called unto him the centurion and asked him whether he had been any while dead. 
Pilate's had a rough night here. His wife had a nightmare. Uh, he had probably got no sleep himself thinking about what he had done. He had condemned an innocent man, really committed murder. Uh, he knew better than that. But for the sake of his job, he knew it was either Jesus or him because he would be tattled on by those Pharisees back in Rome and in the process he would lose his job and so he tried to wash his hands of the whole thing but he knew he couldn't. He was guilty. There's that stone I showed you a picture of it a few weeks ago in that amphitheater in Caesarea which bears the name of Pontius Pilate showing he was a historical fact. This isn't some pie in the sky. We find that Pilate actually existed. History even tells us that he was a cruel man. And even after this, he squelched this rebellion someplace. And he put it down with a heavy hand. And he was called to Rome for his actions. And before he got there, his mentor died, his protector back there. And Pilate was exiled, they say, to Geneva, where he died there in Switzerland years later. We find, though, in verse 44 that he marveled if Jesus were already dead and called unto him the centurion and he asked him whether he had any while been dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. Notice this centurion is mentioned again. This is the same guy, a a, a soldier of soldiers, a ruler over a hundred Roman soldiers, the one who had oversaw oversaw the execution of of Jesus who had followed him from Pilate's judgment hall over to Herod's, uh, back to Pilate, and and, uh, had even been in the garden where he was arrested initially and and watched this man uh, be brutally treated and and, uh, those talking about him were saying he was the son of God and he's mulling that over in his mind as he stands at the foot of the cross and finally when he sees the sun go black and he, he feels the earthquake... He says, surely this man was the son of God. Now he appears before Pilate and, and maybe with a glow upon his face, he, he affirms that, yes, sir, he has died. And we find here that Pilate at that point, according to verse 43 and 4, gave the body to Joseph of Arimathea. We see this unnerved despot, but thirdly, we see what I call this unresponsive deity. Now, for 30 years, Christ had had worked with his father there in the carpentry shop. He had lived with his siblings there in the village of Nazareth. And finally, that day came where he took off his work apron and he, 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 he wiped the sawdust off his hands and he walked out of there and he began his earthly ministry. And for the next three years, along with his, his followers, he was, he was opening blind eyes, he was unstopping deaf ears, he was raising people from the dead and doing miracle after miracle. But the greatest thing about his ministry was his words. Never man spake like this. And for three years, they're following him saying, this is him. This is the one. And now he's dead. We find this unresponsive deity. He's a lifeless, limp corpse being carried about and prepared for the grave. We pick it up in verse number 46. It says, And he, Joseph of Arimathea, bought fine linen and took him, Jesus, down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. Now, in our, our Western minds, we picture digging a hole and, and putting a, a vault in that hole and putting a casket inside of that vault. I used to dig graves back in, in high school. And putting the lid on the vault and, and covering it over with dirt, and, and uh, we say, that's a burial. Well, in, in the Middle East, at that time at least, the wealthy... Uh, had these plots, these burial plots, 
And they're kind of like condos if you want to picture them that way. They would bury a body by putting it on the rock there embalmed in this linen that's wound around the body. And they would let it sit there and they would let it decompose for years, whatever. And, and when somebody else would die, they would go in and they'd gather up the bones and they'd put them in a bone box. And they would set that on the shelf within this burial condo there. And, and this, this rotation uh, kept taking place here. But this tomb had never been used. It was, it was hewn out of a rock. It had never been used. We read over in John 19.41, it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. And so we find this brand new cave hewn out of the rock there. In Jerusalem today, within the central part of the old city, you find this Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's called, which is supposedly the, the, the place where Jesus was buried. But it could not be because it was inside the city walls at that time. And the Bible tells us that Christ suffered without the gate and he was buried outside the gate. Back in the late 1800s, there was a British general who was staying in the northern part of Jerusalem by the name of Gordon, General Gordon, and a, a great believer, loved the Lord, and was very curious about the real site of the crucifixion of Christ. And, and so he... He dug all over, he looked all over, he, he noticed this uh, little jut up of a hill there outside the northern gate of the city of Jerusalem where at certain times of the day the sun would, would reflect across the rocks and, and make the face of a skull. And he thought, this is interesting. You can read all this in Haley's handbook, by the way. He started digging around it and he found a, a, a former burial ground. He found a, a garden-like place nearby and he found this tomb that he thought, this really fits the description of everything we find in the four Gospels. He kept digging around it. He found another tomb adjacent to it. And in that one, an, an inscription that says, buried near the Lord. And he thought for all practical purposes, maybe he had actually discovered the very burial spot of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was there back in, in March several months ago. Um, we took our turns going in and I, I waited toward the end and I went in and I I, I sat toward the back and, and, and stayed in there for quite a while and thought, could this be the most sacred place on the planet, yea, in the universe, where Jesus Christ came out of the grave? We read again in, in John nineteen forty one. it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet Laid. They took the body of, of, a, of a person who had died back in those days and they took these special spices and, and ointments and, and they dipped these, these, these shreds of, of linen in them and they shrouded the body in that and actually it would harden and, and become kind of like a cocoon eventually and then they'd put this, this towel over the face. We read in John 19.39, There came also Nicodemus, remember him, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is, to bury. So they bury the Lord Jesus Christ, and they put him in the sepulcher. And in verse 47, the passage ends by simply saying, And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. So they were in haste, they were uh, in a hurry, they finished it, but they didn't finish it totally. And so we find that these ladies thought, we'll come back here in three days and when the feast is over, we'll, we'll finish the job. Well, three days and three nights go by. 
Now, there are some other details. I wish I had time to read them to you. We find them over in Matthew 27 mostly. But, but we find Joseph of Arimathea takes care of this because the apostles were in hiding. And they had, they had no intention of coming back. They were behind locked doors. They figured maybe they would be targeted next. And so there they are in, 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 in hiding. And we find that, that uh, in, in Matthew 27, I'll just read you verses 65 and 66. Pilate said unto them, the Jews, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. In other words, Pilate said, here's some Roman soldiers, here's a seal, seal the door, the soldiers will be there, nobody's going to come and steal that body away. You know, one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection is that seal in those guards. (laughs) I mean, nobody could have gotten by those. And, And actually, what the Jews meant to keep them from stealing the body of Christ proved to be the greatest evidence that Jesus Christ came out of his own accord alive, out of the grave. And of course, the Pharisees said, well, here's some money. They gave it to the soldiers and and just say that the disciples came and stole them away. Just lie about it. They just wouldn't admit it that he had been raised from the dead. Well, we see the undercover disciples, the unnerved despot, the unresponsive deity, but finally and quickly... The unknown doubt. That's what we're talking about here today. When things look dark and dire and depressing and dismal and dreary and desolate, how's this thing going to play out? Now, we know what happened in 72 hours, right? We have that 2020 hindsight. We can look back. But they didn't know. How is this thing going to play out? In life, there are many times when we, we wonder from the cradle to the grave countless times, how is this thing going to play out? I mean, things look bleak. No doubt, maybe in the past year, you've had a bleak moment or a bleak season. Maybe in the past month or past week, it's looked dark. Can, Can God reverse a bleak situation? You've got men in the Bible like Joseph who are thrown into a dungeon after being lied about. Can God deal with that? You, you find people like Esther. Her, her people are going to be slaughtered. Things look bad. Can God deal with that? You find prophets like Elijah hiding in a cave, afraid of for his life. Can God help with that? You find a Mary and a Joseph. She's nine months along on a mule trying to get to, to Bethlehem to have this, this baby. And things look like, wow, why this dumb census? Why do we have to go through this? But God has a purpose in all these things. In fact, even there, in Micah 5 and verse 2, it mentions Bethlehem as the place that Jesus Christ is going to come from. And the point is this, God controls everything. God is in charge. I found a great passage this last week in Habakkuk 3. Verse 17 says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there should be no herd in the stalls. How could it get any worse? Notice the next word, yet. God says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Though everything go wrong, though the wheels fall off in life, totally, yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Because God is in charge. God is sovereign. God has a perfect will. You know, there's a reason they never broke the legs of Jesus Christ. You think that is a coincidence? Or maybe, maybe God was in charge. There's a reason they put a spear in the side of Christ. 
Bible speaks of them looking on them whom they pierced. There's a reason he was buried in a rich man's tomb. That had to happen. There's a reason the, the tomb was sealed. We see an invisible God working all of this. The fingerprints of God are on all of this. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 33, 8, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. When things look bleak, stand in awe of him. God is at work. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that preacher of yesteryear, said that all trouble in life can be traced to looking at problems instead of God. Isn't that the truth? All problems in life can, for a Christian can really be traced to looking at the problem instead of God. We can trust God. We can trust God. I, I've got a, a plethora of verses that speak of trusting God. When our daughter, our oldest daughter, Bethy, was a a little girl. We lived over in Dilworth, and you could always hear the, the trains over there. Those of you who live over there know what I'm talking about. We live close enough to them to hear them. And, and she was always afraid they were going to come into her bedroom, and folks, it sounded like it. So she's a little one, two-year-old going, ah, the train's going to get me. And we, we taught her a little verse. She memorized it. Psalm 56.3 says, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. The psalmist David wrote that, by the way, and you'd think that David was fearless. Any, any young man who'd go down and face a nine-and-a-half-foot-tall giant, he'd got to be fearless. But David had his times of fear, running from Saul and other fears, and he said, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. So we need to trust God when things look bleak. Secondly, we need to wait on God. Don't hit the panic button. That's what we normally do. Here's a great passage. Lamentations 3.25 says, The Lord is good unto them that wait for him to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And I emphasize quietly. We don't wait quietly normally. We kind of bounce off the walls like Daffy Duck, kind of, you know, panicking all over the face. And, and, and the Bible says, wait quietly on the Lord. Wait it out. Don't run off half-cocked. We find God says this in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. When things look bleak, be still and know that He is God. He is the King of the universe. He hasn't, he hasn't slid off His throne. He is still in charge. Yes, we live in a world of turmoil. And yes, we have uh, those out there with an ungodly agenda. But the presidents and the kings and, and the prime ministers are as grasshoppers in his sight. We, we, uh, we, we read that model prayer, what's called the Lord's Prayer quite often. And in it you find these words, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. God's in control. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. God kneels at the feet of no one. God is sovereign. He doesn't get permission from anyone. He has a plan. He is good. He is wise. He knows what he's doing. And in Psalm 135 and verse 6, it says, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deep places. And so the cross was all planned. Calvary was all planned. The burial was all planned. God has never said oops. There's no oops in his vocabulary. Bible says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding, and in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. You know, humanists think they're calling the shots. I mean, really? We have a God who's in control. I think back in the 50s or the 60s, years ago, the, the Russians sent up some kind of a satellite, 
And in the Russian newspaper, there was a headline that said, the solar system is now under new management. Oh, really? <laughs> That's a good one, right? The, the solar system, yea, the universe, has always been under the same management. There is one who is sovereign, who is eternal, who is all-powerful, and so it doesn't matter, whatever it might be, he's in charge. Maybe you've lost your job or you can't find one. Uh, maybe you've lost a friend. Maybe uh, you're, you're tired of a chronic illness. Maybe a loved one has died. Maybe it's a prodigal. Maybe uh, you're stuck in uh, an addiction. Maybe uh, it's a cold marriage you deal with. Maybe uh, it's a heartbreaking divorce. And whatever it might be, God is in charge. When things look bleak, we can trust in the Lord with all our heart. Lean not unto our own understanding, and in all our ways acknowledge Him. The Bible says, and He shall direct our path. Is there a way out? I love this passage. Isaiah 43, 19. God says, I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I can even make a way in the wilderness. Maybe you're wandering through the wilderness of life right now. God can even make a way for you there. You know, a story is told of a, of a man. I'll tell you who he is in a moment, but... When he was a nine-year-old boy, his mother died. He never got an education. At age 22, he lost his job. And so he stuck out, struck out and tried to start his own business. And a couple years later, his partner died, leaving him heavily in debt. He had to pay all the debts. And uh, when he was 28, I think, he finally got up the nerve to propose to a gal he had known for four years. She shot him down. She, she refused. He went on. He, he ran for Congress a couple of times. He lost. When he was uh, 41, he was married by that point, but his son died. When he was 45, he ran for Senate. He lost. When he was 47, he, he uh, ran on the VP on the ticket as the vice president. He lost. When he was 49, he ran for the Senate again. He lost. You'd call this guy an industrial strength loser, you know, at this point. But two years later, at age 51, Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States. Now, let me just say, there are going to be times when things look bleak. There are going to be times when, when life is hard. Life is hard. It's discouraging. Uh, even in the stages of it, we find children struggling. We find teenagers struggling. You know that roughly 5,000 teenagers commit suicide every year in America. That's an awful statistic. You find that as, in, as you graduate from college, you, you set out in life, you try and make something for yourself, there are setbacks, there are problems, your expectations are, are dashed, there are financial reversals, and, and as you get older, you find you, 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 you didn't achieve what you hoped to set out to achieve. There was a preacher at a preacher's meeting, and all the preachers were standing up and and uh, given their names and, and their Bible college that they graduated from. And he said, I'm pastor so-and-so. I went to the school of hard knocks, and our school colors were black and blue, and, of course, everybody cracked up. But there's a lot of truth to that. Maybe you feel like you've gone through the school of hard knocks, and your colors are black and blue, and yet we know, according to Luke 137, that with God nothing shall be impossible. Nothing's impossible with God. When things look bleak, I said, number one, trust God. Number two, wait on God. And number three, finally, go do something for God. Go find somebody worse off than you. When things look bleak, go find somebody who's got it worse than you and try and be a blessing to them. 
Many years ago, uh, Dr. Carl Menninger was holding this, uh, this meeting. He was a, a famous psychiatrist at the time. And, and they were asking the, the doctor questions. And somebody said, how do you deal with somebody who's on the verge of a nervous breakdown? Of course, everybody expected him to say, well, you need to get him straight to the, the uh, hospital or get him on some pills or something like that. He, he said, if somebody's on the verge of a nervous breakdown, I think they need to go to a, the poor part of town and find somebody worse off than them and help them out. And everybody's jaw dropped. You would never expect to hear that from a secular psychologist. But the bottom line is he was saying, don't focus on yourself. When things look bleak, the worst thing we could do, folks, is turn inward. Focus on self. Worry about self. The very best thing we could do is focus outwardly and get our eyes off ourselves and go be a blessing to somebody else. There were two Christian ladies who were together mending the pants of their husbands. And one wife was talking about how discouraged her husband was, how depressed he was, how full of anxiety he was, and how he just sat around, didn't want to do anything, and life looked just horrible. The other Christian lady was talking about how her husband was just uh, living for the Lord and and rejoicing in in the blessings of being a Christian and and, uh, serving people. And uh, it got quiet for a second, and then they both looked down at the pants they were sewing, and one housewife was sewing the bottom of the pants, the, the seat of the pants of her husband. The other one was sewing the knees of the pants of her husband. And folks, that's the difference. One was serving, the other was just kind of sitting around lamenting. When things look bleak, God help us to get our eyes off ourselves and get involved in the lives of others. And the Bible calls it dying to self. Dying to self. You know, the most miserable people are those who worry about themselves. Look, there are over 7,500 promises in the Word of God. Let me just give you one. When things look bleak, Romans 8, 28, we all know it, right? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. That is a promise. Let me give you another one here quickly. Psalm 37, 25, the psalmist says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken. That's a promise from God. When things look bleak, there is a way out. Back on December 7, 1941, there was an admiral uh, who was in, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., and he was, uh, he was taken in a play when he got a, a uh, call from the uh, president himself, FDR. I think it was Halsey, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the president said, he said, uh, we've been bombed and Pearl Harbor is in ruins and, and uh, no, it was Chester Nemitz, it was Admiral Nemitz. And, and he said, uh, Admiral, he said, he said uh, we're at war. And of course, Admiral Nemitz, he immediately flew to Pearl Harbor and there was still smoke and carnage and bodies and, and blood and, and it was just an awful mess. And he, he toured the harbor. Some of you have been to that harbor there and and his aide was next to him, and he, he looked out at everything, all the, the wreckage, and he said, you know, the Japanese made three of the biggest mistakes you could ever make when you attack another nation. And his, his assistant went, oh? He, he said, boy, I thought they did a, a pretty thorough job. He said, no, no. He, he said, first of all, they attacked us on a Sunday. Well, that's our day off here in our, our culture. And, and he said, uh, nine out of ten men were on leave. They are on shore. They weren't in the ships. Instead of 3,800 casualties, there would have been 38,000 casualties. He said, mistake number two they made is, you see those dry docks over on that side? He said, the Japanese were so consumed with, with uh, downing our ships on this side 
that they forgot to take out our dry docks where we repair ships. He said if they'd have taken those out, we'd have had to bring the ships up and, and tow them all the way back to the States to try and fix them. He said now we can bring them to the surface and bring them over to dry dock. We'll have them fixed and back out there in the time it would have taken to tow them back to the U.S. He said thirdly, he goes, every drop of fuel in the Pacific is over the hill five miles on above-ground storage tanks. And, and he said, if one plane would have just gone over there and strafed one tank and started a domino effect, it would have exploded and they could have taken out all our fuel. He said they made three of the greatest mistakes you could ever make. Admiral Nemitz saw the silver lining when things looked bleak. Now, things look bleak here, no doubt, as we close out Mark chapter 15. Our Savior has suffered, he's bled, he's died, he's, he's in the ground. How is this thing going to play out? Psalm 30 and verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Would there be joy in the morning? What's going to happen here? Well, stay tuned until next time. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.